Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day, folks, and today we're, we're going to be travelling north, really north, and I can see Paul's got some maps laid out in front of him, mate. <laughs> yeah. I, I can see from here. Now, we talked about the Antarctic a few episodes ago, so this week I'm assuming we're going to the Arctic. And before we get started, mate, can you explain the difference to me? What's the Arctic and what's the Arctic Circle? Ah, uh, yes, good good point, Mikey. So the Arctic Circle, of course, you know, obviously there's no real circle, there's no line in the sand, as it were. Or the snow. <laughs> or the snow. But it is effectively a straight line, and it marks the line of latitude going right round the top of the globe. It precisely tracks the northernmost point where the centre of the noon sun is visible during the December solstice, and it's the southernmost point where the midnight sun is visible during the June solstice. So yeah, the sun is above the horizon for 24 hours continuously, so it's visible at midnight um, during the summer, and then it's below the horizon for continuous 24 hours. It's not visible at noon during the winter. And so I'm assuming that's true for the Antarctic Circle as well. Yes, the Antarctic Circle is exactly the same, except, of course, in the south. Now, the interesting thing, though, Mikey, is that the position of these circles, they're not actually fixed. The Arctic Circle currently runs at 66 degrees, 33 minutes, 48.9 north of the equator. That's its latitude, but the latitude depends on the Earth's axial tilt, yeah, and it fluctuates to the margin of almost 2 degrees over a 40,000-year period, and it all because of the tidal forces of the Moon as it orbits around the Earth. So that's over 40,000 years, so that's not a huge drift, is it, mate? It's not a huge drift, but we are currently drifting northwards, so the Arctic Circle is shrinking, they reckon, at about 14.5 metres per annum. Anyway, important as that may be, the most important thing about the Arctic, particularly compared to the Antarctic, is, of course, it's all ice. There's no land. Now, try and remember that, folks, because it gets pretty important. And the other thing that's very different to the Antarctic is that in terms of exploration, it's completely impossible to identify who did what early on in the early years in the Arctic. Well, let's face it, man, because there would have been a whole bunch of varying people living up there, which, which there wasn't around the Antarctic. That's right. Not only were there people living there, but of course, you've got the Europeans exploring north, certainly from the Viking period, people like Eric the Red, and maybe from even earlier. You've got the Russians coming through Siberia. In Canada and Greenland, as you say, you've got people living there. You've got the Inuit. You may even have the Chinese and the Japanese coming up. You know, we talked about those Chinese treasure fleets with Zong Hei in that earlier episode. There's a strong chance one of his ships went north and hit the Arctic Circle itself. But, mate, if we're talking about Western exploration, I've got a funny feeling we're going to go 19th century and we're going to be talking Victorians. That's right, Mikey. That's the one thing the Arctic and the Antarctic do have in common. It's really the Victorians when the exploration gets serious. And the first guy I want to touch upon is a name you remember from that previous episode, Sir James Clark Ross. Oh, yeah, I remember him. He was the howler who stitched up Charles Wilkes. Now, before he started doing dastardly deeds down south, he was up 
in the Arctic Circle with his uncle, Sir John Ross. And the two of them, they had their own expeditions. And then James Ross, the younger one, went on by himself. And to be fair, he actually discovered the magnetic North Pole on his expedition between 1839 and 1843. Okay, Paulie. Magnetic North Pole, geographic North Pole. I know they're two different things. (laughs) I I know that, but, but mate, how does it actually work? Okay, so the geographic is the exact top Um, of the earth if you like but the magnetic north pole that's the point on the planet where your compass your needle the little black needle that's where it's magnetically drawn to now i say black there deliberately mikey as opposed to the red on the opposite end of the needle because there's quite an interesting story behind that too you see the reason why those two pointers are colored as they are and the reason why there's a, a white bezel a white circle in the middle This actually goes right back to ancient history before the Romans to the Phoenicians in the eastern Mediterranean. How come? Well, you see, your red pointing south because below the Mediterranean is the Red Sea. To the north of the Mediterranean... You've got the Black Sea. The Black Sea. And the Mediterranean itself, before the Roman times... who gave it the name Mediterra, in the middle of the earth, before the Romans, it was actually called the White Sea. And we're still using that up until this day. Welcome back, folks. And today we're talking about Arctic exploration. We mentioned some Victorian, some English names, but mate, I think it's time we got Scandi. That's right. You can't talk about the Arctic and Arctic exploration without talking about the Scandinavians, because, of course, it all started back with... The Vikings, but the guy I want to talk about is a guy called Fritjof Nansen. Um, now, now, man, is he a hero or a howler? Now, I'll be honest, Mike, I, I still haven't quite decided, but he was a Norwegian explorer and he had a lot of unconventional ideas, particularly about the designs of ships. And he decided that he could specially design his vessel to survive frozen in a pack of ice. Because as we said at the top of the show, the Arctic... There isn't any land, it's just ice floating on water. And he believed if he could lodge his ship into some pack ice, eventually that pack ice would drift up and take him to the North Pole. Hang on, let me get this straight. His strategy was to actually have his ship, not shipwrecked, but surrounded by ice and drift north. Which is kind of weird, because we also said in the Antarctic episode that it was pretty dangerous to be crowded in with pack ice. That's right, but in 1893, he sets out to prove his point. And he takes his ship, the Fram, and it's got this customised, rounded hull underneath. It's quite shallow, so that as the ice packs in and starts to crush, it would pop up and sort of ride along on top. And did this work, mate? Well, at the beginning, it all seems to be going well. Yeah, he sails north, he gets into the Arctic Circle, he freezes his ship in the ice, and they start to drift. But unfortunately, the pace at which that ice drifts is so slow that even 18 months later, he still had no joy. So, let me get this straight. He's drifting around in the pack ice for 18 months. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's right. But he doesn't give up. He actually jumps off his ship, and he takes his dogs and his sledges, and he keeps on going. Now, he doesn't reach the North Pole itself, but he does set the record for the farthest, most northerly line of latitude ever achieved up until then at 86 degrees and 14 minutes. So pretty damn close. Right. Now, Matt, if we are talking about the North Pole, the one name I remember from school was the American guy, Robert Peary. That's right. Now, Robert Peary, as you say, he's the one that we all know. He's the American explorer, and he's the one who claims to be the first person to have reached the geographic North Pole on April the 6th. 1909 by a combination of ship and then further on by dog sled so he's the first guy to the pole 
Well, there's two problems with this, actually, Mikey, and that's why he's not going to be today's hero. One, did he actually reach the North Pole? Because a lot of his colleagues were sceptical, to say the least. And two, because another guy, Frederick Cook, this doctor who'd been on various expeditions previously, some, in fact, with Peary, he accepts that Peary has completed his accomplishment, made it to the Pole, but he counters Peary's claim with an account of his own rival expedition, stating that he had reached the Pole a year earlier, on the 21st of April, 1908. Okay, so how come I've heard about Peary, but I've never heard about Cook? Well, the problem with (laughs) Cook is that there were also doubts surrounding his expedition, and these doubts were founded on a bit of previous form. You see, in 1906, this same Cook guy, he claimed to be the first man to ascend Mount McKinley, which is the highest peak, highest mountain on the North American continent, what's now known as Mount Denali in Alaska. But it soon turned out that claim was completely spurious. In fact, there are these notorious photos called the fake peak photos, which supposedly show him at the peak of Mount McKinley, which have all been proved to be just that fake. And so when it came to his claims about the North Pole and his 1908 expedition, I'm afraid the experts and fellow explorers gave him a very short shrift. And realistically, Mike, it's probably a very good job they did because the route that he described he took (laughs) turns out to be very similar to the route that Jules Verne's fictional hero, Captain Hattaras, (laughs) took in the 1860s novel The Adventures of Captain Hattaras, which is supposedly when the captain himself conquered the Arctic single-handedly using a fictitious route plucked straight out of Jules Verne's imagination. So, man, if you're going to fake a route to the North Pole, probably not a good idea to take it from one of the most popular novelists of the time. (laughs) That's right. But I suppose the big problem, Mikey, is that in terms of getting to the geographic North Pole, unlike with the Antarctic, you can't just stick your flag in the ground and say... I've made it. Because, of course, well, there isn't any ground. It's just ice. That's right. No matter where you stick your flag, no matter which piece of ice you stick it into, by the time the next person comes along, that ice flow may have drifted metres, hundreds of metres, perhaps even kilometres away. So you've got Cook on one hand and you've got Perry on the other. How do they decide who was the eventual winner of this? Well, the USA stepped in, as they quite often like to do, and there's a congressional inquiry into whose claim best stood up to the test. And it was Peary who won that. And he's probably right, because as I said, this Cook guy, he was a bit dodgy. He had some past form. And actually, in fact, in the 1920s, he ends up getting jailed for being mixed up in some dodgy get-rich-quick oil schemes. But personally, Mikey, I'm going to put them both down as howlers. Welcome back, folks. Now, today we're talking about Arctic exploration. And before we go any further, I've just got to point out that Paul has got the table in front of us covered in maps. Yes. So obviously, mate, we're not finished. No, we're not finished yet because you can't talk about Arctic exploration without mentioning another quest, a quest that sort of ran parallel, if you like, the fabled quest for the Northwest Passage. Ah, right, yeah. yeah so, um, as you say, I've got a couple, couple more maps that I want to show you today. And don't worry, folks, I'm going to make sure that Paul puts these maps up on the Twitter and the Facebook so you can follow along at home. All right, so as you can see here, Mikey, on these two maps, the extent of the ice 
in the Arctic Circle is very, very different in the summer than it is in the winter. And of course, these days, the ice in enough of the sections is so minimal that the sea route that is the Northwest Passage from the Atlantic to the Pacific and vice versa is something of a doddle and has been since 1969 in the SS Manhattan. But it wasn't always that way, was it, mate? No, that's the point. In fact, the idea of the Northwest Passage, that's been the holy grail for Western exploration for centuries. Well, that's it. Ever since, really, Columbus first got to the Americas, Europeans have been looking for alternative routes to get to China to get to the Asian markets because it was soon pretty clear there was no navigable passage through the centre of the Americas. And sure, Magellan finds his way down past Cape Horn in the southern route, but that's a very long and very hazardous journey. So the Europeans all wanted to know, particularly the sea powers of England and Spain, could it be possible, was there a way to go around the north of the American continents, avoid all the danger of Magellan's route, save time and lives, and access the Asian markets that way. So what you're saying, Paul, is from pretty much the 16th century on, this Northwest Passage was like the ultimate goal for the, the merchants, the explorers from Europe. That's right, the final frontier, if you like. And if you look at this other map I brought in, Mike, you you go, please. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you'll see why it's so important, but also so difficult. Sure, it's a great shortcut to get yourself from the Atlantic to the Pacific, but as these close-up maps highlight, it's a navigator's nightmare. Okay, mate, talk me through it. It's basically made up of three sections. Now, in the east, you're coming in from the Atlantic. You've got Baffin Bay. Obviously, you've got Greenland here. You've got Baffin Island. And you've got this stretch of water called Lancaster Sound. Now, that's very important. Right. Lancaster Sound. I'm going to write that down. Lancaster Sound, right? (laughs) Keep going, mate. Now, to the south, as you can see, you've got this enormous stretch of water, what we now call Hudson Bay. And unfortunately, captain after captain thought this bay would hold the key. And decades were actually wasted, Mikey, poking around looking for a way through, only to be met by yet another dead end. And we'll we'll come to that a bit later. But next up, if you really want to get your ship through, you need to head into this bit, the central section. Here, you've got this sort of archipelago of thousands of different islands in the Canadian Arctic. And from Lancaster Sound, you can head north and then west through the Parry Channel, which was discovered in 1819. And then you get through the Prince of Wales Strait, and suddenly you find yourself at Victoria Island. And then suddenly it all opens up. That's right, because the western part is, you know, it's not quite plain sailing, but there's no major islands, so you can follow the coast, you can get round Alaska, and then exit the Arctic Circle through this big gap here. Okay, mate, that sounds pretty straightforward, but I'm guessing it wasn't that simple back in the 16th century. That's right, in the 16th century, you know, none of that was known. You know, it was just a white blank on all the maps, just as it was for those explorers that did make it into the Arctic Circle. Yeah, a white blank mass of ice and snow on the ground. So they, they didn't know what was, was land covered in snow, what was ice packed sea covered in snow. That's right, it was almost impossible for them to tell what was the solid mainland of what's nowadays northern Canada and what were these islands that needed to be circumnavigated. And let's not forget too, icebergs ran about the same size as Manhattan Island. But the prize of the Chinese markets was so big, Mikey, these European powers weren't going to be put off. In fact, in a strange sort of way, they're actually pretty confident. Why? Well, it goes back to our old friends, the Vikings. 
Because the Vikings, you see, they've been sailing far to the north and to the west. They got as far as here, Ellesmere Island, and this one, Scrailing Island, on their hunting expeditions. And they'd started to trade with the Inuit, and the Inuit had told them of their great journeys through the snow and ice, which, of course, they'd been making often in small boats for hundreds of years. So you've got the Spanish, the French, the English involved. You've got all the big names, Cortez, Francis Drake, John Cabot. They all set out looking for this breakthrough. Mostly, of course, from the Atlantic side, but also once more ships are exploring over in the Pacific, also from that side as well. Anything that might give them clues on how they might finally make it over the top. Precisely. In fact, in 1640, a Spanish captain by the name of Bartholomew de Fonte, he claims to have made it right the way through. Problem solved. <laughs> Except it turns out this guy's a complete howler and <laughs> just been going round and round Hudson Bay. Uh, okay, Paulie, now that you've mentioned Hudson Bay a few times now, I'm sort of guessing there must have been a, a Mr. Hudson. <laughs> yeah, there certainly was, Mike. Yeah, Henry Hudson, to be precise. Yeah, captain in the English Navy. One of the greatest early explorers in the region. Yeah, he finds this enormous bay. Which he names after himself. <laughs> yeah, he finds Hudson Bay. And in the summer of 1611, he pushes onto here on the map, James Bay, which a bit more modestly he names after James I, King of England. Oh, and Scotland. And Scotland, of course, mustn't forget that. And on board... He has an English and Scottish Navy crew. But the problem is, Mikey, this crew mutinies and sets Hudson and his teenage son, John, along with seven other loyal crewmen. They set them adrift in a small open boat and they are never seen again. That's a bit harsh. Yes, it is a bit harsh, Mikey. And to make up for it, the British Navy send out a series of potential rescue expeditions. The most important of these rescue missions is the one led by Robert Bylot in 1616, along with his sidekick William Baffin, as in Ah, Baffin Baffin Island. Now, they don't find Henry Hudson, unfortunately, but they do find Lancaster Sound, and they manage to go through it to the furthest northern latitude ever recorded, 77 degrees, 45 minutes. And that's the record which stood for 236 years, which we mentioned earlier, with Fridjof Nansen breaking. Okay, mate, up until now, we've been talking about people coming in from the Atlantic side, but you mentioned before about people coming in from the Pacific side as well. Very much so, Mikey. And in 1649, there's a guy called Semyon Desnyov. I'm going to say he's a Russian. (laughs) He was. He was in the Russian Navy, and he's the one who finds the gap between Alaska and Siberia and discovers the access to the Arctic Circle from the Pacific. But hang on, mate. I'm, I'm looking at your map here now. That piece of water is called the Bering Strait. Yes, unfortunately for Mr. Desnyov, there's a guy called Vitus Bering, who's a Danish Navy officer, but he's actually in Russian service. He's with the Russian Navy, and he pulls rank on his fellow colleague Desnyov, and he gets the crowning glory of naming it after himself, the Bering Strait, which gives us yet another howler. Okay, so that's the Pacific side. But really, most of the headway is coming from the Atlantic, right, Paulie? And I'm guessing by this stage, it's mostly being led by the Brits. That's right, because we're into the 18th century now, Mikey, and this is really where the Brits do take over. In fact, in 1745, there's an Act of Parliament promising 20,000 British pounds as a prize to anyone who can finally put the Northwest Passage to bed. 20,000 pounds, like back in those days, that is a lot of money. That's right, and it draws in a whole other set of big names. In fact, in 1776, Captain James Cook 
no less, is dispatched to have a crack, along with his Admiralty sidekicks George Vancouver and William Bly, who of course you will have heard of. Mutiny on the bounty all over again. So did any of them crack it? No, Mikey, that's the problem. They fail, and in fact the Brits keep failing all the way through into the 19th century, and that brings us to probably our greatest howler, Sir John Franklin. Sir John Franklin? Hang on, that name vaguely rings a bell. All right, well, Sir John Franklin, he's one of the great... Victorian explorers, and in 1845, he set sail from the Atlantic side with confidence sky high. He's sure that he now knows the route he needs to take. But unfortunately, in 1846, his ship gets ice-locked near King William Island, which you can see here is about halfway through, and unfortunately, he's unable to break free. In fact, Franklin dies in 1847, and the expedition is taken over by Captain Francis Rawdon Mariah Crozier. That's a hell of a name, mate. <laughs> yeah, it is. But unfortunately, in 1848, he and his crew have to abandon both the ships in their party and try and make their way to safety by heading south on a sledge. Now, it seems that some of them did actually make it quite far and may have even survived right up until the 1850s. But unfortunately, none of them made it home. Then how do we know about them? Well, they didn't make it home, but some of the logbooks and notebooks that they took with them have survived. You see, the success of this expedition under Franklin was so important to the British Navy, they couldn't let it rest. So as soon as it was clear that they hadn't made it through, rescue expeditions were sent out to try and recover them in various search parties, the most important of which was led by Commander Robert McClaw. And it was him and his crew that found these notebooks at the various sites and pieced it all together. Now, they didn't find Franklin or the ship throughout the four years of their expedition from 1850 to 1854. They are the ones to find the missing link to join the two sides of the Northwest Passage. The problem is, though, they're using their ship, the HMS Investigator. But to traverse this crucial middle link, they actually have to disembark and take a sledge. So they don't actually sail the Northwest Passage. That's right. In fact, they turn around once they establish that there is a possible route. And unfortunately, on this return journey, McClure's ship gets trapped by ice and stays trapped for almost three years. Three years trapped in the ice in one of the coldest parts of the world. How did they survive? (laughs) Well, that's it, Mikey. They actually almost didn't. You see, McClure's been sent out to try and find Franklin, but when he doesn't come home, another guy, Sir Edward Belcher, is sent out to try and find McClure. Unfortunately for old Commander Robert, he succeeds. He pulls him and his crew out of the ice-strapped vessel, half dead and dying of starvation, and returns them all to England successfully by the end of the year. So after all this, at least they now know the Northwest Passage exists. Well, well, that's it. And typical British imperialism, they ignore the bits about using the sledge. They spin both of the disasters into victory and they claim that they have the first man to have successfully made the traverse. Except really he didn't. (laughs) That's right, but it doesn't stop the Brits. McClure's knighted, in fact he's even made Rear Admiral. He's toasted as a hero. The £20,000 prize is claimed and shared between him and his crew. But really, yes, he's yet another howler. Okay, Paulie, so up until now, it's pretty much been howlers and misadventures. You've got to have a hero for us somewhere. All right, yeah, well, fortunately, Mikey, there is one real hero in this story. It's a Scotsman by the name of John Ray. Now, he's an employee of the Hudson Bay Company, and he's been exploring the region by land throughout this period. But the difference with him, Mike, here, unlike Sir Edward Belcher and his all-singing, all-dancing expeditions, this guy listens to the locals 
and employs the Inuit techniques. So he only has tiny expeditions, less than 10 people in a party. He uses dog sleighs. He doesn't use vessels. And he makes such a name for himself that the Brits recruit him to help in the rescue effort to find Franklin and McCure. Now, the interesting thing is he doesn't find Franklin or McCure, but what he does find is that from that Lancaster sound we were talking about at the beginning, he realises that there is actually two ways through, one to the north, which we talked about before, but another to the south, through the Prince Regent Inlet and through a tiny exit, the Bellet Strait, past Somerset Island. And he realises that unlike that route further north, which is almost always going to be bound by ice, as McClure found out, this southern passage in the summer might be ice-free enough to slip a ship through. And sure enough, he's proved right. He doesn't make it himself, but in 1906, the great Norwegian explorer, Roald Amundsen, who we talked about in the Antarctic expedition, he does make the first complete passage solely by ship. He takes a shallow bottom sloop by the name of Gujar, and he makes the trip all the way from Greenland and the Atlantic right through to Alaska and the Pacific. And of course, he does this by using Ray's route. Precisely, and that's why Ray's my hero. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at The Rest Is Hist. The Rest Is Hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. <laughs> right, which brings us to next week. Yes, next week. Look, apologies, folks. We, we flagged that this <laughs> week we, it would be our foray into invasive species, when actually, of course, we've been circling the Arctic in search of the North Pole. But don't worry, next week our invasive species are on for young and old. That's right, and as Mikey previously promised, we've even got a bit of the bard thrown in. Gotta love the bard. Mm-hmm.